Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 15, After the Soga Clan. The fall of the Soga clan remains one of the most dramatic stories of ancient Japan. It is somewhat tempting for a Westerner like me to compare the event to the assassination of Julius Caesar. Certainly, there are parallels, the accusations of tyranny, the shocking display of political violence, but the contrasts are far stronger than the similarities. The insurgent Roman leaders pretended at high-minded ideals in the justification of the murder, and Caesar himself was extremely popular among the common people. While certainly the plotters against the main branch of the Soga clan had to adopt noble-sounding pretenses to justify their bloodshed, a lot of the reasons were probably conceived to curtail retaliatory action against High Prince Naka and the other plotters. As for the common people, there's no indication that they regularly played any role whatsoever in the political process at this point. I think it's safe to assume most of them had much more immediate concerns than who sat upon the throne in the Nara Basin, as long as whomever sat there was performing the necessary rituals to ensure that the peasants' hard work was rewarded by satisfied gods. The faction who initiated the coup would naturally want to emphasize that the Soga clan was especially bad, and thus drastic action was needed. Now that High Prince Naka and his associates were in power, they had a vested interest against normalizing political assassination. As King Kotoku took the throne, he rewarded those whose efforts had placed him there. The three main conspirators in Soga no Iruka's assassination were appointed to powerful offices. High Prince Naka was officially named Crown Prince and heir to Kotoku's throne, Soga no Ishikawa was appointed to the post of Udaijin, or Minister of the Right, which was the primary minister in charge of non-ceremonial affairs, and Nakatomi no Kamako was appointed to the post of Uchitsuomi, which was a special ministerial post in which he directly advised the king. To the very high-ranking position of Sadaijin, the primary minister in charge of ceremonial affairs, who also technically had authority over the office of secular affairs, King Kotoku made an interesting choice. He entrusted this position to Abe no Uchimaro, a veteran statesman who had once worked closely alongside the late Soga no Emishi. He appears to have been instrumental in the previous elevation of King Jomei over Prince Shotoku's son, Prince Yamashiro. I think it's safe to assume that he was no Soga partisan, but instead was a capable leader who likely saw himself as an equal to Soga no Emishi and the other high-ranking clan leaders at court. It's possible that his appointment to Sadaijin, an office only two degrees removed from the sovereign themselves, was a conciliatory gesture, meant to assuage any lingering pro-Soga elements at court. It's just as possible, as far as we know, 
that Abe no Uchimaro was given the job because he was well-respected and comfortable sitting in positions of authority. Now comes the tricky part of this particular era. These offices I've just named almost certainly didn't exist, or at least didn't actually carry those titles. The latter half of the 600s was a time of change at the Yamato court, as various monarchs and subordinates acting on their behalf sought to reorganize the state in a way that increased the court's power using the structures and philosophies of the neighboring nations as models. These resulted in a large set of changes remembered as the Taika reforms. According to the Nihon Shoki, King Kotoku and his lieutenants were visionary leaders who immediately implemented this sweeping reform program in very short order. Historians generally balk at this claim, noting that contemporary records do not reflect this sort of drastic transformation, nor would the extremely conservative elements at court, that is, the chieftains who preferred to manage their own holdings without interference, have tolerated such a sudden metamorphosis. The generally accepted course of events is that Crown Prince Naka, who again was now the actual head of state, periodically released edicts announcing these changes throughout the court's domains using the many Buddhist temples that now dotted the countryside as organs of government press releases. The Taika reforms thus gradually emerged piecemeal over the course of the late 600s and very early 700s, and were made to appear as one unified suite by later court-sponsored authors. We'll discuss the new, improved Yamato state structure which emerged by the early 700s two episodes from now. In the meantime, we'll focus on the circumstances and conditions around the throne beginning just after the Ishii incident. King Kotoku, having rewarded his loyal supporters, was ready to reign. It's possible that not all of his opponents' doubts were sufficiently assuaged, however, as he made his seat of power in the city of Naniwa, which is modern-day Osaka. You may recall that King Keitai, the alleged fifth-generation descendant of King Ojin, who succeeded the childless King Buretsu, likewise set his capital in the Osaka region rather than in Nara for the first 20 years of his reign, and that historians frequently interpret this as a sign of that monarch's general insecurity in the Nara Basin. There may be another more practical reason why King Kotoku set up his capital in Naniwa, access to the sea. The kingdom of Baikje, now in its waning days, was persistently begging Japan for support against Koguryo and Silla. Those other two peninsular powers were also sending diplomatic missions regularly, likely trying to ensure that Japan stayed out of their affairs. Then there was the Tang Dynasty. Unified rule in China had lasted long enough by now to convince everyone that it was here to stay. Having a port city for the capital meant envoys with gifts from Japan could more easily make the voyage directly from the king, 
and more directly bring back the considerably more valuable gifts from the Tang court in return. We've already discussed that Chinese influence increased during the Asuka period, but now I'd like to very briefly backtrack and discuss the Soga clan's legacy. It is arguable that by inviting Buddhism into the nation, a brand new religion to the Japanese complete with a thousand years of its own history, Soga no Iname was opening a door which his descendants found themselves quite unable to close. George Sansom describes Buddhism as a vehicle, a most appropriate descriptor, because many of the larger schools of Buddhism like Mahayana have vehicle in their name. However, while the practitioners would describe their methods as vehicles by which they sought enlightenment, Sansom's meaning is that it was a vehicle which also transported culture. Given the Soga leader's admiration for the state of Baikje, it's generally assumed that they were fairly comfortable with the idea of importing that peninsular state's ideas and skilled labor. It seems likely that the Soga did not fully realize just how vast and how varied Buddhism had already become. It is possible that, having already dominated the royal court politically, the Soga may have initially intended to create a pathway by which they could dominate the religious side of their government as well. It would be difficult to supplant the Inbe and Nakatomi clans who oversaw religious ceremony at the end of the Kofun, so perhaps Iname and the other ranking Soga leadership believed that they could break the power of the ritualists by championing this new faith. Considering the path to power that one branch of the Nakatomi clan would eventually take, the historical irony is almost too good to resist. However, we can't really perceive Soga no Iname's intentions here. One further note before we examine the developments in Japan after the main branch of the Soga clan was so unceremoniously dispatched is that many historians now believe that at the time of the Ishii incident, the throne was not occupied by Queen Kogyoku, but was experiencing what we refer to as an interregnum, a period when there is no sitting monarch. The version of the coup against Soga no Iruka and Emishi, recorded in the Nihon Shoki, almost gives a royal assent by Queen Kogyoku, who leaves the room at a particularly dramatic moment, as if to grant tacit approval to the subsequent murder. It could be that Soga no Iruka, consistently irritated by his fellow nobles' refusal to place his preferred candidate on the throne, who may not have necessarily been Queen Kogyoku, mind you, was lured to the palace by a promise of compromise. Perhaps even a lesser member of his clan, like, say, Soga no Ishikawa, delivered such a message and claimed it was genuine. This is speculation, of course, but I find it easier to believe that the famously cautious Iruka was convinced to come unarmed as a sign of good faith and with the promise that Ishikawa would protect him, rather than being randomly convinced to leave his sword at the door before an official reading. One thing that was certain, however, the Ishii incident went down. After it was over, the most powerful branch of the Soga clan was gone, 
and new leaders rushed to fill the vacuum left behind. If you're wondering whether any of the conspirators of the Ishii incident ever turned on one another, the answer is yes. Soga no Ishikawa, the nervous reciter who nearly ruined the entire coup with his sweating and shaking, was accused of plotting treason in 649 and took his own life. His wife and children, likewise, are said to have taken their own lives, and the court actively hunted down anyone associated with the plot and killed them. This doesn't come as a huge surprise, given that Crown Prince Naka and Nakatomi no Kamako were interested in solidifying their own grip on power, and a resurgent Soga clan could potentially get in the way of that. It might be unfair to single them out, however, as there were probably many ministers at court who would rather just not take the chance of an ambitious Soga upstart upsetting the apple cart they had so carefully arranged. What we do know for sure is that Soga no Ishikawa was dead, and any latent fears of a revival of Soga power were put to rest alongside him. King Kotoku, whatever his reasons for moving his capital to Naniwa, began to feel pressure from elements in his court that he really ought to return to Yamato. Crown Prince Naka, in particular, insisted that the court relocate, and officially petitioned for such a move in 653. While Crown Prince Naka had grown considerably in power during this time, essentially taking on a similar position to Shotoku 30 years before him, King Kotoku flatly refused to move his court back to Nara. It could be that he was trying to flex his royal muscle to show this young whippersnapper exactly who was in charge, but if that was his objective, it failed miserably. Crown Prince Naka staged a mass exodus, and most of the ministers followed him back to Yamato, leaving King Kotoku to sit on his lonesome throne. The next year, 654, the Nihon Shoki states that he grew ill and died. Unfortunately, this brings us to yet another case of, or was it murder? I promise to do my best not to let such inquiries disrupt the narrative too much, so in this case, I'll just note that it certainly could have been. Crown Prince Naka did not ascend to his position as de facto chief executive of the Yamato state by being a pacifist, nor does the portrait of him we find in the Nihon Shoki come across as even remotely squeamish. Likewise, just as he had refused the crown after murdering Soga no Iruka, he also did not ascend the throne after Kotoku, so we can certainly recognize that this may have been part of a pattern. Maybe King Kotoku was murdered, but if he was, there were no consequences for it, and life went on. The next monarch was Crown Prince Naka's mother, former Queen Kogyoku. Now in her 60s, Queen Kogyoku was given a new name, Queen Saimei, and ascended the throne in 655. Prince Naka was not named as her heir until 658, but I could not find any reason why. Again, this was all written about much later and 
Royals like Naka and Saime were sanitized, so it's only speculation, but it could be another bit of evidence supporting the idea that Crown Prince Naka had King Kotoku assassinated, and that his mother took the throne and gave him a three-year timeout until the outrage at his actions subsided. Again, there's no way to be certain about any of this. 660 was a big year for Queen Saime's court and for Japan as a nation. The Tang invasion of Korea succeeded where the other peninsular powers had so often failed and had destroyed the state of Baekje. I mentioned previously that this event came as a terrible shock to the Yamato court, and Queen Saime is alleged to have taken these events particularly to heart. She quickly proclaimed that she was moving her court in order to lead a peninsular expedition and restore Baekje herself. She first set herself up on the eastern end of Shikoku, then eventually settled the court in northern Kyushu, where the military was staging for the invasion. However, as the army was preparing to embark in 661, Queen Saime grew ill and died. This does not seem to be a case of, or was it murder, as the monarch was approaching 70 and just undertook a massive journey to the far end of her realm. Plus, if Crown Prince Naka's previous hesitation to take the throne can be understood as an indication of foul play, that was not the case this time. At long last, in 661, Crown Prince Naka ascended the throne and became King Tenji. In what has to be an all-time historical irony, one of King Tenji's wives was a woman from, say it with me, the Soga clan. However, she was the daughter of his co-conspirator against the Soga elders, Soga no Ishikawa, who by this point had been dead for more than ten years. He seems to have shared his mother's zeal for avenging Baikje, and supported the restoration effort, which took another year to launch. In the meantime, he is said to have given his fellow plotter Nakatomi no Kamako a special assignment, drafting and compiling a code of laws. The adoption of law codes is a critical step for a lot of civilizations. In Season 2, we discussed how the Qin dynasty championed the philosophy of legalism, wherein laws were given paramount importance. Legalism would never again see quite that level of state support. But the dynasties that followed the Qin obviously still utilized laws when necessary, and legalism's philosophical works may have exerted an influence on the leading minds of the Yamato court in the Asuka period. The Omi Code, as it would later be known, is sadly lost to us today, except by references from surviving documents. Along with the constitution attributed to Shotoku, this was an important step in the government of Japan's development into a full-fledged state rather than the confederation of powerful clans. It allegedly took Nakatomi no Kamako several more years before his laws were ready to be promulgated, and in the meantime there was a war to win. In 663, the Yamato Navy, along with armed refugees from Baikje, led by Prince Buyeo Pung, embarked for the shores of their occupied homeland. 
While initially the expedition met with some success, the chronicles record more than a little strife among Baekje leadership. Prince Buyeo had lived in Japan for 30 years before leading a liberating coalition army, and Gwisil Boksin, a longtime Baekje general who had been leading the local insurgency before the prince arrived, may have felt unjustly marginalized by the prince's return. What happened next is confusing, and we are obviously missing several pieces of this historical puzzle. The meager Tong garrison was driven off fairly easily shortly after the expedition made landfall, but China soon sent a fresh army to counterattack, and the resistance was besieged in Churyu Castle. But there was good news. A fresh reinforcement army was arriving from Yamato. However, Gwesil Boksin appears to have then murdered a Buddhist monk named Dochim, who was another leader of their movement, and tried to arrange for Prince Buyeo to meet a similar fate. Prince Buyeo got word while there was still time, and had the general arrested and then executed. Then he made a huge mistake. The would-be king of Baekje gathered his closest retainers and slipped past the siege line to join with the Yamato army he believed would soon be landing along the bank of Baikgang River to join them in a glorious victory. He arrived just in time to witness the Tong navy give the Yamato ships an absolute thrashing at the Battle of Baikgang, in which tens of thousands of the ship-bound warriors from the Yamato Relief Army perished as their incursion was decisively repulsed. By the time he rode back to Churyu Castle, his absence had been noticed and the defenders, believing he had abandoned them, lost heart. The fortress fell shortly thereafter, and Prince Buyeopong fled to Koguryo. It is really difficult to overstate just how big of a disaster the Battle of Baikgang was for the Yamato state. Any dreams King Tenji may have harbored of becoming a mighty emperor of an eastern empire sank to the bottom of the Yellow Sea along with his ships. The final destruction of their peninsular ally was a bitter development for both the nobles and the commons. The craftspeople, monks, and warriors who had formerly moved to Japan as gifts from the Baekje king were now stranded refugees who might never lay eyes upon their homeland again. Worse yet, the stories that the few returning fighters had told of the huge Tong armies and their considerable maritime skills must have sent an icy chill down the spine of even the most skeptical ministers. When the Tong were finished dominating Korea, what could possibly stop them from doing the same thing to Japan? Thus, there was general agreement in the royal court, and likely throughout the nation, that better defenses were urgently needed. The small island of Tsushima, located nearest to the Korean peninsula, received a garrison of fighters, as did Iki Island and the northern coast of Kyushu itself. Great building projects ensued, featuring defensive fortifications like walls and ramparts, 
practical upgrades like water and food storage, which could be utilized in the event of a siege, and signal fires to warn of approaching invaders. The development of these fortifications would continue throughout the late 600s, and although originally intended to keep foreign invaders at bay, they would later be utilized by ambitious courtiers for very different purposes. In 669, Nakatomi no Kamako grew very ill, and upon his deathbed, received a special new name from King Tenji, his longtime ally, co-conspirator, and friend. This name was Fujiwara no Kamatari, and his sons would also go by that same name, effectively founding the Fujiwara clan. Remember the name Fujiwara. They're going to be around for a long time. As for King Tenji, he died in 672 and was survived by his 14 children. Luckily, the king had the wisdom to choose an heir from among them before he died, thus securing a peaceful transfer of power which would surely lead to an age of peace and enlightened prosperity. As I hope you can infer from my tone, King Tenji's choice, Prince Otomo, was not accepted by many powerful clan leaders. In a different age, some kind of peaceful option may have been attainable, but this was not an age of peace, nor were the powerful clan chiefs who supported the Yamato state willing to allow an unacceptable ascension. In the next episode, we'll discuss the ensuing Jinshin War. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan. Visit the online store, ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web, ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.